Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Finally, we enter the last part of the story in Matthew, the Passion Narrative, the part about Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. As we start out in this last section of the story, we find a lot of covert activity. We find Jesus again organizing covertly, this time to find a safe house in which to celebrate the Passover. We find the Sanhedrin plotting covertly to apprehend Jesus. And we find one of Jesus' own disciples going over to the other side to meet covertly with the Sanhedrin. We also find that Jesus knows what is going on before his opponents do, that he is following the script given him by God through the prophets, and that this script flips the script of the dominant socio-political order that his opponents are following. As his conflict with the authorities comes to a head, we see the great reversal of everything enter its ultimate phase. In this section, he is anointed by a woman in a marginal space for his parousia, the coming of the Son of Man. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 62 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin with the first two verses of this section, Matthew 26, verses 1 to 2. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus predicts his own death for the fourth time, this time while in Jerusalem. And this prediction drips heavy with irony. Right before this, Jesus just shared a vision of himself as the Son of Man, a king, judging the nations. Now he says that the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified by the empire on the day of Passover, the day that his people celebrate liberation from empire. But that is the irony of his parousia, the irony of the coming of the Son of Man. Let's read verses 3 to 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. The chief priests and elders of the people meet at the home of Caiaphas to plan Jesus' arrest by stealth and kill him. They with the Pharisees have been looking for a way to arrest Jesus ever since he told the parable of the vineyard tenant's rebellion in chapter 21. But they are still scared of the crowds. The crowds have been Jesus' protection. The statement that they plan to arrest him by stealth, that's the NRSV translation, could be ironic, 
because Jesus has just for the fourth time predicted his arrest. So it's not going to be the stealth operation that they think it is. Or the word could be translated to mean by deceit, meaning that the Sanhedrin plans to use underhanded means to put him to death. As we will see, they will give Judas a bribe to lead them to Jesus, get false witness to testify against Jesus, and incite the crowd against Jesus. In their minds, this is all morally okay because upper-class people thought it not to be shameful to use deceit against troublesome people of the lower classes. Jesus is a troublesome peasant, so any deceitful means that they use to get him is still honorable, moral, and completely lawful in their minds. Let's read verses 6 to 13. Now while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, Why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she is preparing me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. A woman anoints Jesus. Messiah means the anointed one. And this is Jesus' anointing. This is his parousia, his coming, to be anointed as king. And the anointing is done at the hands of a woman. All four Gospels in the New Testament have Jesus anointed at the hands of a woman. Warren Carter notes that this scene depicts her as a prophet and a priest. The statement by Jesus that her act will be remembered whenever the message of the new society is told may be to draw attention to this fact. A woman anointed Jesus at his parousia. A woman was the priest or prophet at this crucial moment. In the highly patriarchal culture of the ancient Mediterranean world, it was not easy to break out of the stranglehold of patriarchy. After all, this story is still very male-centric. But looking forward, Jesus is telling the audience that in times of crisis, when profound wisdom is needed, women will be the prophets, the ones who have eyes to see and ears to hear. We will see this again when we get to the resurrection. It is also significant that Jesus is anointed at the home of a leper, someone who is socially outcast. This whole anointing happens in marginal circumstances, among peasants, by a woman, at the home of a leper. Jesus is anointed as king right before his crucifixion. This is his parousia. This is the coming of the Son of Man that the text has been literarily pointing to. And Jesus goes out of his way to say that this woman has anointed him for burial. The men object, saying that the perfume should have been sold and the money given to the poor. While many modern affluent readers scoff at their concern as not being authentic, the disciples are trying to follow Jesus' teaching. Jesus just taught them, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, that whether they give to the poor 
whether they invest in the culture of mutual aid, is what they will be judged for. He just taught them this. Bruce Molina and Richard Rohrbaugh, the scholars that I cited in the last episode, who have analyzed the gospel texts through the lens of social science, point out that the expensive perfume that the woman has would be seen by peasants as the fruit of thievery, the same way that all exorbitant wealth was seen by peasants as the fruit of thievery. And to liquidate it and disperse the proceeds to those in need in the community was the honorable thing to do. Why then does Jesus not object as the disciples do? Why does Jesus not agree with the disciples and his own teaching? This will be one of two situations around his crucifixion where someone of means uses their wealth to honor Jesus. The other will be when Joseph of Arimathea buries Jesus in his own tomb. This woman is a woman of means, as evidenced by the fact that she has expensive perfume. And it's already significant that she has come into this marginal space among peasants at the home of a leper. And she is liquidating an asset for the movement. She is performing an act of solidarity with this peasant movement. Jesus and the disciples have a choice here. They can disparage her action as a bumbling act of privilege by a wealthy person, or they can accept what she is able to do, given her social standing, and interpret it as the act of solidarity that she means for it to be. The disciples choose one path, and Jesus chooses the other. I should say that the male disciples choose one path, and Jesus chooses the other. She may be privileged by wealth, but she is marginalized as a woman in a patriarchal culture. Rather than condemn her for her act of compassion and solidarity, Jesus affirms it as an act of supreme insight. You see, Jesus, through his death, is about to strike a death blow to the system and structure of domination. This is his parousia, and he says that the woman has recognized that. She has eyes to see. The male disciples, in contrast, have had a lot of trouble understanding this. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 15, The poor you always have with you. While this might come across to us in English as dismissive of concern for the poor, it's actually a text which goes on to encourage giving to the poor. And the original audience would know that and would understand that Jesus is affirming giving to the poor even as he is trying to point out that this is a special situation. So Jesus affirms the impulse of the disciples to redistribute wealth. But he lets them know that this woman is liquidating her wealth for a more profound purpose. She is anointing him for burial, for his parousia. The woman has understood where they have not understood. She is the one with eyes to see and ears to hear. We will see the men continue to struggle to remain faithful and all of them will end up abandoning Jesus, while the women remain faithful, staying with Jesus. This woman has anointed him as king and prepared him for burial. She understands the coming of the Son of Man. Let's read verses 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve who was called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. 
After the male disciples accuse the woman of inappropriate use of a resource, a male disciple goes to betray Jesus for money. Judas begins to look for the right time to betray Jesus. And so the abandonment of Jesus by the male disciples begins. Let's read verses 17 to 19. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to make the preparation for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. As Judas looks for the right time to betray Jesus, Jesus sends someone with the coded message, The teacher says, My time is near. As in the case of getting the donkey for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, or his parody of a triumphal entry, Jesus seems to have done some underground organizing and has a contact that can provide a safe house where he and his disciples can observe the Passover. Passover is celebrated with the family. The disciples are Jesus' family, his household. Since the household was the basic social, political, and economic unit of that society, his observance of Passover with the disciples sends a signal that they are initiating a movement for a new society. They are not part of any established household, but have formed their own wandering, subversive household. Let's read verses 20 to 25. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, You have said so. Jesus is going to the cross according to plan, as it is written of him. The Sanhedrin thinks that they have hatched a secret plan with Judas. But Jesus knows their plan and is following a plan that he knows will put him in their hands. It's all according to the prophetic script. Jesus and the Sanhedrin are following two different scripts, but one of those scripts takes account of the other and will flip it. Jesus says it would be better for Judas not to have been born. Jesus is speaking to the great shame that Judas will experience when his betrayal is exposed. In this honor-shame cultural context, shame is something we modern Western readers easily miss. There is a great reversal of shame happening throughout this story, and it peaks at the crucifixion. Crucifixion was an immensely shameful way to die, but the shame will be turned on the perpetrators. We will see that happen first to Judas. The script of honor and shame is being flipped. Let's read verses 26 to 29. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Jesus breaks the bread and offers it as symbolic of his body that will be broken on the cross. Then he offers the wine as symbolic of his blood that will be shed on the cross, calling it the blood of the covenant, which is a reference to Exodus 24.8. The Exodus story, of course, is what they are commemorating with this Passover meal. The Passover meal is the celebration of Israel's liberation from slavery in the Egyptian empire to become a free and just society. In Exodus 24.8, the blood of the covenant is the blood of the animals sacrificed to seal the covenant before God and the people after the reading of the law for the new society that they would be forming in their new land. And it is likely that the people ate the sacrificial animals. That is what usually happened with sacrificial animals. By offering the bread and wine as his body and blood for the disciples to consume and calling his blood the blood of the covenant, he becomes the sacrificial animal that liberates them from empire and seals the covenant with them to create a new and just society. Now, Exodus 24.8 speaks of a time well into the Exodus story when Israel has already left Egypt, but has not yet entered the promised land to become a free and just society. The term Passover literally refers to an earlier phase of the Exodus story, when God sends the final plague on Egypt, which allows Israel to make its escape to freedom. And that event involved the slaughtering of lambs whose blood was smeared on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over the Hebrew households and not take the firstborn of Hebrew families. So the Passover lamb became central to the Passover meal that Jews celebrated every year. Interestingly, The only elements of this Passover meal mentioned in this Matthew passage are the bread and the wine. There is no mention of a Passover lamb. Perhaps Jesus is the Passover lamb, freeing them from empire. 1 Corinthians 5-7 refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb, and the book of Revelation portrays him repeatedly as the lamb that was slain. The passion narrative of John's gospel describes him as a Passover lamb, and earlier in that gospel he is proclaimed as the Lamb of God. So the community that wrote the New Testament seems to have understood Jesus as the Passover lamb, the one whose sacrificial death liberates people from empire. So Jesus is, symbolically, in the bread and the wine that he gives to his disciples. And what that means is that he is symbolically both the sacrificial animal that seals the covenant for the new society as seen in the reference to Exodus 24.8 and also the Passover lamb that is absent from the Passover meal. The absence of the Passover lamb and the symbolism of Jesus as the replacement of the sacrificial animals that seal the covenant and of the Passover lamb itself further signals Jesus' opposition to the sacrificial system. Jesus himself becomes the replacement of the sacrificial system. But so do his disciples and everyone who follows him. They are all called to follow him in the way of the cross. Their deaths become the deaths that liberate the people from empire to form a new society of justice and mercy. By symbolically consuming Jesus' body and blood through eating the bread and drinking the wine, 
They take Jesus into themselves. They join him as sacrifices, committing themselves to martyrdom if necessary. And there is another irony or reversal here. Death was the ultimate impurity, but sacrificial death was the ultimate purifier. The deaths of Jesus and all who follow in his footsteps would normally have rendered their bodies impure. But by framing them as sacrifices, they become the vehicle through which others are purified. Jesus says that the wine is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Sin is impure. This is about purification from sin. But it is also more than that. The word being translated into English as forgiveness means release and has a much broader range of meaning than forgiveness of personal sins. Warren Carter lists seven different times this word is used in the Hebrew Scriptures. Number one, it is used in Leviticus 25 repeatedly to speak of release of debts, release of debt slaves, and the return of land to those who have lost it. Two, Deuteronomy 15 uses it to speak of release of debt and debt slaves. Three, Jeremiah 34 uses it to speak of release of debt slaves. Number four, Isaiah 58 uses it to declare, let the oppressed go free, which comes right after a call to unloose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, and to break every yoke. Number five, Isaiah 61 uses it to proclaim release of prisoners and good news for the poor or the oppressed. And 6 and 7, Esther 2, 8 and 1 Maccabees 13, 34 use it to speak of relief from imperial taxes. It's also worth pointing out that sin and debt are the same word in Aramaic, the primary language that Jesus and his disciples actually spoke. So forgiveness from sin has a much broader economic, and sociopolitical connotation. Forgiveness of, or saving from, or liberation from sin in the ancient world was a sociopolitical event. The prophets speak of it this way. Also, Caesar, in addition to being worshipped as son of God, was also said to take away sin. While Caesar took away sin through domination and making war, Jesus takes away sin through his death, his martyrdom, symbolized in this meal. And, as we will see, his death will be both a taking away of sin and a judgment of sin. Jesus' death will affect a judgment on the sin of all oppressive powers and authorities. This is the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, comes as the King who dies by crucifixion, and his crucifixion judges the kingdoms, the rulers and authorities, of this world. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please spread the word about this podcast and give us the sort of ratings and reviews that will draw others to the podcast. Questions and comments can be sent to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has supported this podcast in all the ways that you have done that. This has been episode 62 of Bible Study parody, and subversion in Matthew's Gospel.